John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1000.ES0905, certificate number 42869, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Who controls the British crown? Who keeps the metric system down? We do. We do. Who leaves Atlantis off the maps? Who keeps the Martians on their rafts? We do. We do. Have a favorite conspiracy theory? Do you feel? Do you feel? Uh, are you like seduced by, um, by ideas? Ge- you know, generally that things are controlled from behind the scenes. I, my conspiracy theories that I genuinely believe are pretty banal. Like uh, you explained the popularity of the band The National by <laughs> virtue of some kind of behind the scenes conspiracy machinations. Probably even more banal than that. Like, I tend to think that the sound meter on sports events jumbotrons Mm -hmm. that purports to go up and down green into red as the crowd gets louder Mm -hmm. is fake. It's just a a pre-taped graphic and it's not reflecting crowd noise at all. When the when the uh, when the 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 ball game happens at a Mariners game where the hats, the balls you know, are hidden. The, it's three card Monty with a yeah three card Monty cast. with hats or the or the three speedboats that are racing and hydrofoil and, race yeah and is it red green or yellow do you think those are rigged or do you think those are actually uh, put put into motion there I think the hydrofoil game is random and the ball in the hat is real as as pur- purported so uh-huh. I don't think there's a deception there the last time I was at a Mariners game I was sitting by uh, a couple Londoners. Who li- was I telling you this? Who were no. literally looking on Wikipedia trying to figure out where the score was? Because at a baseball game, you see R H E runs hits errors. Right. They, they have no idea what's going on. They're like, did, "Now did that man?" It's super confusing score? even to me. What's the score? But they were the most confused by the hydrofoil Who's race at the end of the fifth or sixth inning. He turned to me and said, "Now, now, what's this now?" <laughs> well, these boats are racing on the screen. It has nothing to do with baseball. And he was like, oh, "All right then, I guess." Championship League football, Premier League football does not have. No, they're behind. Well, you know, Premier League football at that point in the game would have a giant fist fight. (laughs) Right. In in real life, (laughs) not on the screen. The other conspiracy theory I absolutely believe is that those um, penny crushing machines that make souvenir coins Uh are not actually crushing a coin. They've got got pre-squished coins. No. And they just take your penny and your quarters and they spit out a pre-squished coin. You're old enough to have put coins on a railroad track. Yes, but I don't believe uh, 
You don't believe that machine is isomorphic. To, you know, <laughs> yeah, the railroad track is fake too. While the train is passing and you're it's, not looking, it's dropping smashed a coins. A train employee is cleverly <laughs> reaching down and switching. But so you don't tend to think of global uh, politics as being something that's, um, if not controlled, at least greatly influenced by uh, by cabals or by organized groups of powerful people who are who are affecting I'm skeptical trends. in general for a couple of reasons. One, it's hard to keep a secret. Boy, I'll tell you what, you know, like if, uh, if there really was something good in area 51, we would know, I think seems like it would be tough to keep. You'd have to tell thousands. There's of a lot of government employees. Yeah. Yes. And they're, they're bored. They're not actually working most right. of the day. They, they have lots of time to email their families and be like, Oh, I saw the alien corpse again today. Yeah. They can't all be sworn to secrecy and be like read into, I mean, there are a lot of people that are just sweeping the floors, right? I mean, exactly. they can't all Somebody's know. changing the vending machine right. Cokes right. at Area 51. And I guess the other reason is um, it just seems like it's, you know, it's so hard to have a global, consp- it's just easier not to. Like I think about this, I think about how the technology to do a, a 9-11 type attack existed for decades before September 11, 2001. Right. And All you had to do was uh, use a box cutter to get an airplane. It, and yeah, it's 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 crash it into a building. You never it's just no one ever thought of it before. Yes. Like the knife part of it is like literally bronze age iron age technology. <laughs> uh and it hasn't happened since and surely there are people who crazy and evil enough to want to do that. But it's just easier not to. Like yeah. what a what a hassle to have to get all these guys Teach them how to like uh, take off in a commercial plane. Get all the documentation. You know, <laughs> what if we just what if we just play Call of Duty? You know, and I I genuinely right. think the world is full of examples like that, where the massive sinister things we think probably could be happening, but um, part of the banality of evil is just that um, the laziness of evil also. Like it's easier not to have a big scary conspiracy. Well, and the simplest explanation is often. The truest, right? It, it just yeah, never, you, never ascribe to malice what can be chalked up to what's the incompetence or incompetence. whatever, whatever the thing is. I mean, if you, as soon as you have more than three people who know a, a piece of information, it's no longer a secret. And uh, for sure, if you've got, if you've got groups that involve dozens of high ranking, rich industrialists, we know that they can't keep secrets any better than anyone else can. They're doing stupid things all the time. And, and occasionally they get caught. And that makes you think, hey, if this guy, if this bozo was flying to his pedophile island all this time and people were winking, does that mean conspiracy theories are true? Because look, this guy really was doing all this stuff and, and everybody turned a blind eye. Or does it mean, no, this guy eventually got caught. There's no way you could do a moon landing on this scale. I don't know what to think. I tend to think... No, I as, think most conspiracies are made up. As someone who has spent quite a bit of his online life uh, being in the conspiracy debunker camp, I will warn you that we're going to get plenty of letters, even based on the first five minutes of this show, from people who want conspiracies to be true and who have lots and lots and lots and lots of convincing documentation. I don't want to reduce all these people, but it's easy to see why you would want conspiracy theories to be true. It's 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 a very appealing idea that the reason why the world is such as it is and things are against you in, in general is because there's a coordinated effort that's out to get you. It's a very appealing idea, 
but a particularly modern idea. Is that right? Yeah. If you go back to, well, I mean, you're a student of the Bible and of I am not of Aquinas and of. Uh, <laughs> the uh, oh, for two. the Greeks, Aristotle. <laughs> I've heard of all these books. They sound great. But if you go back to to not just the writings of ancient times, but also the writings of medieval times and the Enlightenment, really, you don't find conspiracy playing a major role in the way the world is described. Nobody in the Renaissance is like, Columbus faked it all. Columbus faked the whole thing. The New World is a soundstage in Venice. Because power and... Um, and politics are pretty pretty nakedly exposed. The king is in charge, and the king said this. It would and be hard for him to keep a secret. He has, uh, but he also like he has a sort of self interest in in um, in keeping things in play. And a lot of the the royal families were all related to one another, uh, so it wasn't a secret when this princess married that count. What the what the plan was, what the plot was. Does that mean when we talk about old-timey conspiracies, star chambers and cabals and, and gunpowder plots and whatever, like at, at the time, nobody was like, the king's a figurehead, there's a star chamber making all the rules. A lot of, you know, there's a, a, a lot of it is retroactive conspiracies because as conspiracies became Ret- popular. Retcons. Right. As they became popular, they had to be located in documents of the past, in Symbolism yeah. of the past, ancient truths, right? Rosicrucians and all of the above. Uh, but also it was, it, conspiracies became more and more popular as the explanation for events became harder and harder to uh, elucidate or it, harder to harder to understand. Sure. Like everyone in the world, I cannot explain to you why World War One started. Or why, or why it, how it ended, yeah, exactly. why it ended the way it ended. And it's pretty um, complexity breeds conspiracy. Yeah, the the American Revolution doesn't have a lot of conspiracy around it because it's pretty clear. Unless what, you believe in Adam Weishaupt and the Illuminati, John. <laughs> like, but but again, those are conspiracies that came yes those are after ret- the, retcons. That's right. At the time, uh, it was. It Both was, sides agreed. Yeah, that it was a taxation without representation. Here's and, why we're going to do this. Uh, and so it was the 19th century, really, where things started to become politically complex in Europe, especially. Uh, and it was a result of a post-French Revolution, the beginning of a kind of republicanism, uh, the the royal, the, the aristocratic class was under siege, old systems were falling apart. There was industrial industrialization happening. There were finally multiple powerful parties with competing interests. And there the were people, the church, the state, the, right. the new middle class, new middle class industrialists who yeah. had tremendous power, but uh, but you know complicated allegiances, and also within Central Europe, especially competing powers that were um, that were sort of changing the landscape of of central Europe in a way that was changing sort of who, who had authority over new populations, old populations, borders were being transferred. For example, in the mid 18th century, the Austrians, the Prussians and the Russians partitioned between the three of them, what had been uh, Poland, Lithuania Mm -hmm. and 
you know, the Lithuanian, the duchy of Lithuania slash Poland was took, took up most of what we think of as contemporary Poland, uh, the lower half of the Baltics, all the way down to Moldova. And Moldova's back. Yeah, that's right. Like all of Central Europe kind of was this um, was this very powerful duchy for most of the most of the millennia or for certainly for a large port, portion of it. And as that as the power of that nation declined, Russia, Austria and Germany and Prussia sort Move of in. moved in and and ultimately just decided, let's just split up this whole Central Europe into into three quadrants and we'll. That's not a conspiracy. It's a treaty. It's they, just a. It's they a, all did it openly. It's a treaty. It's an invasion. But what, what uh, was true of that area was that it was the. It, it represented the lion's share of the Jewish population of of Central Europe. At that point in time, Russia had almost no Jewish population or a negligible one, hmm. um, and Germany and Austria too were not were not. Um, they didn't have an ex- extensive Jewish population because they were so concentrated right here in the lower Baltics. Because who were the, the Jewish people? Oh uh, well, no. In ce- in Central Europe, it was just kind of like not not just the lower Baltics, but Poland, sure, and Ukraine. These were this was the sort of majority population of Jews in the okay. And so all of a sudden, you had uh, big Jewish populations within these pre-existing countries that didn't have prior. Um, didn't have prior, you know, experience with dealing with this l- very large minority group. That already there was a lot of, you know, anti-Semitism isn't a new thing. Nobody likes a minority group. Nobody likes a large, powerful, successful minority group, especially. Right, and but uh, you know, the the Jews of Central Europe were not. I don't want to say nobody likes a minority group. That's harsh. But generally, people are not good at being welcoming. If you're looking for, if you're looking for somebody to not like. Why wouldn't it? Yeah, be the- <laughs> pick a, pick the safer, smaller one you can beat up. Yeah, it's, but that's the, how it works. The Jews of Central Europe were not powerful or rich. They were, you know, typically just pe- a peasant class. Okay. Um, but the introduction of Jews into these nations that were also competing for, they were competing on a uh, competing on a global scale, and had aristocracies that were. We're beginning to feel the pressure of modernity, and there was a there was a kind of rise of conservatism in politics and government because post French Revolution there was a people are panicked. They're panicked, right? I mean, retrenchment you, against we, the mob. We have this example of what republicanism can do, but also what it looks like. And it sure seemed like domino theory, you know, to use Cold War language. Like this is coming for you next, no- right. nobles. And the revolutions of the of the um, the mid nineteenth century uh, that put the fear into all of the nobles of the of Central Europe, Eastern Europe, because it was you know it was only this close. Uh, the 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 um, and they've got to know that you know we haven't been treating the peasants great either. When you think about it, no, guys, let's right. let's be honest. So a retrenchment of conservatism um, and also a, an awareness of what probably didn't feel inevitable, but certainly felt like the march of time and progress was was delivering this republicanism to unto the world. America was ascendant. France, I don't think you could describe as ascendant exactly during the 19th century, but but certainly was, ex, you know, it was um, exporting this new sort of revolutionary uh, 
intellectualism. Mm-hmm. We, and during this period, we also have a rise of not just the industrial class, but, uh, but a, a, a lot of migrations of country people to the cities. This is an era where, where people are leaving behind old crafts and leaving behind a, an agrarian life and becoming factory workers. And That's where the jobs are, people. yeah. So also during this period, there's a, there begins to be a kind of, uh, there's too much information for people to take in to explain everything with a, with a thumbnail description. Like, why is it that this revolution failed and this one succeeded? Why is it that, um, why is it that the, 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 the sort of complicated global relationships now are not it's it's not just a simple relationship between the the daughter of this prince and mm-hmm. the son of that prince there are kings interacting with democracies and and if you're a peasant farmer you still don't care but increasingly there's a class of people who are you know living in cities kind of trading stories reading publications they're they're literate now that's right uh they uh they can follow these affairs um there's a there's a growing class of people who will start to chatter, and it won't just be gossip about whose daughter uh, got caught doing what in the hay loft anymore, right? <laughs> right. Like it might be it might be really juicy geopolitical stuff. Well, and it, it it coincides with the rise of the popular novel. Ah, uh, right. The, Stories. The rise of the pulp novel, and in particular, the sort of era of the like. Like this is when Alexander Dumas is writing the Three Musketeers, right? We have the political novel. The um, a lot of these novels do have like political skullduggery, right? That's right. There's scheming. Uh, there's someone behind a, a bookcase, and, yeah. and you know the um, the advisor to the king is whispering in his ear. There's a there. It's a popular form that is um, you know equivalent to a thriller that didn't really exist prior to this. I mean, outside of stories around a campfire. People didn't used to get Jafard, but now they, now Kings get Jafard. They get Jafard, whatever that means. What the hell does Jafard mean? <laughs> the evil vizier. From oh, the Aladdin. vizier. Yes, of course. There's I, always evil viziers and cardinals. I, and whatnot. I haven't seen Aladdin. I, I, I know it's a, a, uh, a hole in my education. Wait, you've never seen the cartoon Aladdin? No. Holy cow. I know, right? This is the this is the conspiracy theory that's going to come out of this. <laughs> Look, I've read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, but I haven't seen Aladdin. Maybe the 10th time you're reading the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, you're like, you know, I should put this down and just watch Aladdin with my daughter. But there was a very influential uh, sort of novel uh, that was in a, in a kind of popular ancient style, which was um, a conversation between the dead. Uh, that was written by a, a Frenchman by the name of Maurice Jolie, who wrote a book called, uh, well, it's basically like a conversation in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. Ah, I see. And what, Fan fiction. That's right. And what he was trying to do was, you know, the the uh, Napoleon III had reestablished the ancient regime or whatever. He, you know, he'd brought yeah. republicanism or no, I'm sorry. He had reestablished the empire, the empire, post Republican, and and uh, Maurice Jolie. It was it, the political climate didn't allow for criticism of Napoleon III overtly. So he wrote this satirical novel, um, where Machiavelli and Montesquieu are debating politics in hell, 
And that does sound like hell to me. Actually, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's like freshman year in college. Two but guys who won't shut up but about it politics. Seems, it seems really like a fun a fun room in hell. You know, compared uh, see, to some of the they're other, they're having ones. a good time, right? I mean, they're just like they're. It's it's a very ineffectual hell if you can just like sit and shoot the bull about politics. Well, with, with, you know, I think with the, celebrities, I think the, there are multiple levels of hell, right? And the ones that are up closer to the to the fresh air. You know, they've got to have, they probably have coffee. Why, right? why is he so convinced that Montesquieu and Machiavelli are damned? Like, well, that's another good question. But <laughs> Couldn't they be in heaven? I guess in heaven you wouldn't, unlikely. you wouldn't care about these lower concerns. Well, and also unlikely that Machiavelli and Montesquieu are in heaven. They, I don't know. They could be. Anyway, it's a, it, it, was, a, it was a satirical critique of, of Napoleon III mm-hmm. in which Machiavelli is arguing that the way to take control of a population of people, the way to um, to manipulate a population in, in the masses, in the masses within the you know this modern um, within a modern society, would be to take control of of the press. Sure, it's the and, beginning of the information society, right? And seed within the press. Uh, discontent and certain ideologies send that, your mom phony facebook updates and make the make the mass feel like that that make it feel self-generating mm-hmm. and to replace kings with with presidents and with uh with congresses where the the leaders are brought up from the mass they're regular people who then can be controlled and manipulated by yeah. All you have to do is have it's, it's much easier to install a congressman than a king. That's right. And it, and all you need is one little bit of leverage, one one Let the record show that John is rubbing his thumb <laughs> and fingers together. But not as not as money, but as an as a uh, example of like if you have one wide stance in a public restroom, sure. you become manipulatable um I by see. using uh, information. That's right. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So all of these kind of methodologies basically more or less saying that liberalism is the is the best path to uh, controlling and ultimately like in, establishing despotism over the mass? And it's still an open question. Like maybe these guys were onto something in hell. Uh, well, and and so and it's very, it's an effective critique and 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 was meant hilariously. Um, of course, uh, Jolie was arrested. 
it, he didn't. Oh, he, although he published little, it anonymously, it was it was uh, it wasn't hard to find him. But um, but the I yeah the idea that 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 the the principles of democracy and liberalism and ultimately culture are all actually pernicious. Yeah, they might not be utopian after all. And that all it is doing is undermining a kind of uh, state of of solidity and calm represented by the by the old masters, right? At least we knew who was in charge. And now everything is potentially undermining our the values that kept us whole. After Jolie, a uh, a writer by the name of Hermann Goethe, who was also kind of trying to write thrillers and adventure stories, uh, arrived on the scene and in 1868 published a novel called Biarritz. And in the course of his Biarritz novel, he quotes slash plagiarizes big, big portions of this conversation between Machiavelli and Montesquieu in hell. But um, instead quotes it not satirically, um, takes it and, and, you know, and using the exact same phraseology, attributes it to a conversation overheard, you know, a, a, a rabbi overheard describing. Is it specifically a rabbi in a this rabbi. case? Okay. Because uh, Gotcha is an antisemite. And this is a this is during a period where antisemitism is also as as a component of this new um, disbursement of Jews sort of centrally in Europe into big cities now. I'm it's guessing. it's becoming a like antisemitism is one of these things that ebbs and flows throughout history, and generally up until this point, it was kind of it was localized. I mean, there were always. Uh, there, there was always a tendency within Germany or in Central Europe to kind of segregate, segregate Jews. But then they would become, there would be a great period where they were, uh, where, where assimilation was more the project. Jews were integrated into society, mm-hmm. but always kind of kept separate. And then there would be another kind of, uh, there would be an event or something, some reason to scapegoat Jewish people. And, and th- throughout the, throughout the whole second millennia after i mean any any time after the jews emigrated to europe mm. and and the diaspora happened you see this kind of ebb and flow is so is Goethe just like lazy and he needs to fill out a word count or does he actually believe that these like does he does he think that this is does he not get that it's a joke i guess is my question does he understand that he's that he's mistaken an onion piece for actual news which is again something that happens in our Modern news cycles. No, he's he is stealing it, uh, but he also is attributing it not to, um, not to Napoleon III, but to what he is kind of sort of positing as the hand behind Napoleon. So this has got to be malicious. Like he's got to know that he is adding something new and untrue to the story by passing this off as a as a as a Jewish plot well t- or taking taking something away from it which is its context sure yeah and what's seductive about attributing it to the jews is that you know jewish people were often relegated to certain 
professions mm-hmm. uh, as part of uh, as part of this system of segregation. Uh, money lending was was thought of as unclean in a lot of cultures. Right, modern prohibitions against usury. Right, right, and so the whole idea of capital had a kind of you know of using capital to invest of of um, banker banking as capital became a bigger bigger part of 19th century economic and political policy within Europe it already had a taint of uh connection to Jewish life and mm-hmm. bankers you know the Rothschilds and whatnot I mean they were they weren't um that that came out of a out of a, a segregationist policy or rather that, that, that just like when we talked about the Kago carpentry and uh, you know, leather tanning and butchery were things that were relegated to a underclass. These are, these are beneath us. We don't feel like a good Christian would be charging interest, but we need it to happen. So it's, you know, it's, it's the same thing you see with immigration debates today. We need this labor, but we have to kind of pretend we disapprove of it. Right. And and that extends then sort of spiritually, psychologically to insurance and to real estate investment, mm-hmm. um, and you start to see you start to see a kind of confusion in the nineteenth century as as craftspeople and and uh, skilled labor become less valuable than. People just working machines in because of, because factory goods can duplicate a lot of their work, right? Right, and it, and it and it becomes uh, you know ancient guilds, ancient talents start to be worth less, and it it's the it's the history of capitalism that you sure, can today, read today. They're all gone. Yeah. <laughs> today, <laughs> today there are no guilds or talents, um, but also also because the um, because there are these newly Jewish populations in these countries. The, the the strangeness of this new world, when you're looking for a reason um, for how, you know how things are getting destabilized in your in your larger sense of how governments and economies work, mm-hmm. and you're looking around like what's different? Oh, you know what? There are an awful lot more. I do see more Jews now. More Jews around. Um, and this was especially true in Russia at the time. Uh, Russia, having having a, 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 you know, taken that portion of Poland that had probably the largest concentration of Jews in Europe, Russia, which had a, a czarist government that was already extremely paranoid, by you know by by nature it was paranoid, but increasingly paranoid as the power of the czar started to degrade by the you know the freedom of the serfs and the rise of a kind of rebellious aristocracy there yeah the Tsar, the Tsars were not wrong right. as it turned out <laughs> but that was um the, the Jews became a convenient scapegoat and so, so you see pogroms on both the local and more widespread level and a lot of uh a lot of sort of story generation having to do with the fact that the Jews, there's more to the Jews than what we see. 
And there were a lot of laws that kept – so th- that area of Poland and Lithuania, that central area, uh, area became what's known as the Pale of Settlement, which uh, there were there were laws that kept Jews in those areas. And they Pale meaning boundary, like beyond right, the pale. I right. See. They weren't allowed to emigrate to cities. Oh, okay. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't leave your shtetl and move to Moscow. There were a lot of restrictions on how you could travel. And that wasn't new to Russia. I mean, prior to the partition of Por- uh, Poland, if you were just a Russian, you, it's not like you could just move freely throughout the country. Mm-hmm. But in particular, the the um, absorption of all these Jewish lands the Jews within were then con- very much constricted in how they could move. But if you were a successful Jew, if you were someone who was aristocratic, if you had made money, you were allowed to travel more freely. You could come to the to the big city. But within the within Jewish life itself, there was a a kind of burgeoning consciousness, a self-consciousness that the Jews were a united people, that they never were fully going to be assimilated into all these nations. There was a, a you know, it was the, it was the very early days of, of Zionism. What became Zionism? The, um, we are the, a people and we are a people and we need to look out for each other. We need to stick up for each other. Um, there was a, and, and a lot of this was focused in France, which was a liberal, you know, a a liberal government at the time where there were notions of equality and fraternity and, uh, Liberty, (laughs) Liberty, they put it on the flag. And so there was, so the Jewish intellectual consciousness, uh, was sort of focused in Paris Mm -hmm. and a group called the, um, the Alliance Israelite Universal. The AIU. That's right. Sort of, (laughs) um, was founded there to support, Jews throughout the world. There was a uh, there was a now an understanding that oh there are all these Jews in North Africa and in Palestine and in Poland. Before it would just be your little shtetl and you would not have a lot of awareness of you know you would know the stories of your people but not the current spread. Right. Right. There's no Rome to yeah, the Jews. Yeah. There's no Pope. There's no central authority, and and so there wasn't a there wasn't a unified. I mean, today there's Barbara Streisand, but at the time there wasn't. <laughs> And so, so at, in Paris, there in the 1860s, uh, the formation of this group, uh, the the premise of it was: let's go out, use our our wealth and our um, and our education to uplift, you know, to to raise the standard of living of poor Jews where we can find them. Sure. And it became a kind of education outreach. Let's go build schools. Let's go get clean water. Specifically for our people who are often disincluded in, you know, the... Or, the or excluded, to coin a phrase. Excluded, right. But, but the, you know, the, the word disincluded is good, but I'm, I'm going to propose <laughs> <laughs> a new word, excluded. <laughs> but but I think, and I don't even know if disincluded is a word, but but um, the, 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 I'm trying to get at the subtle difference between specifically excluded versus sort of passively right, disincluded. Right. Not getting a lot of the benefits that right. are, are coming with, with modernity and, and the new, uh, the new comfort and affluence. And the, the leader of the Alliance Israelite Universal was a man named Adolf Cremieux. And, um, he was also a Freemason. 
Here we go. And uh, there was a uh, – during the French Revolution, which was the, the first kind of instance of like a kind of confusion about how – what are the all these forces that are at work here? Uh, there, It was the introduction of the idea that there was maybe a Jewish Masonic conspiracy that, again, was sort of predicated on control – through manipulation. A secret group we don't know about right. operating in plain sight, but at the highest levels. That is, that's accomplishing goals not by brute force, but by infiltration, mm-hmm. by uh, blackmail, by... All these means that are invisible and therefore, you know, plausible as a as a story. Now, weirdly, Cremieux and his uh, AIU go out and are... I think by by the standards of the time, doing this, doing great work, you know, going to places and really helping uh, raise the living standard, and also imparting a, a like a proud identity to people that had been living kind of in the on the fringe of wherever it was they were living. And if you think about North Africa and the and Arabia and Palestine throughout this whole period, Jews and Arabs lived peacefully side by side for centuries. Sure. Um, and there was not a, a sense of, uh, yeah, nothing was stoking. No, there was no, there, resentment was, there and, wasn't religious hatred. There wasn't a, uh, a feeling. I mean, there was a feeling that these were, uh, religions of Abraham and, and the, the Jews and their Arabs were all more or less sort of Semitic people. There's I mean, a limited kind of pluralism that's working to keep these communities operating and, and running peacefully with each other. Right. And the Ottoman territories had always been, you know, as long as you paid your taxes within the Ottoman empire, they kind of didn't really care what religion you practiced. Uh, and so the introduction of these French Jews into these communities, trying to, you know, develop a, a Jewish identity and to spread, um, to spread this a, a new kind of method of education, a new an enlightenment based education system, and a higher standard of living, probably. Uh, it actually sort of sowed the seeds, began a um, began a, 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 a inserted a wedge, I guess, between the, the Jews and their Arab Muslim neighbors. Where, hey, some of us are getting money pouring in from Paris. Right, and, and some per- of us are not. In particular, par- portions of North Africa and the Levant that were laboring under French colonialism. Oh, right. That although the Jews were their ancient neighbors, as the Jews started to receive the benefits of French education, which ultimately these the the education system that the alliance was bringing to North Africa, for instance, was basically a French system, not a Jewish one. Uh, so it very much looks like the hand and face of imperialism right. reaching in. And suddenly the Jews of these nations started to be regarded as pied noirs, yeah. as uh, as foreigners and interlopers, even though they were ancient, ancient populations. Because of their associations with the new colonizers. That's right. Um but also during this period, there was a movement within Judaism, still a lot of people who thought that the future was to assimilate into Germany, into France, into Russia, assimilate, you know, to um, to become prosperous and to 
in some cases end up with titles. Uh, you know, the Rothschilds became barons. I mean, to mm-hmm. become uh, to become integrated populations rather than always being thought of as other. And within that, there were there were movements to convert. Um, a lot of people did convert. This we saw later during the during the Holocaust, converting to Christianity, converting to Christianity for status reasons. And, and well, for status reasons. I mean, we uh, after the. Um, during the period in Spain where uh, at the Inquisition, the Inquisition killing Jews, there were a lot of Jews that were forcibly converted that mm-hmm. continued to kind of practice Judaism on the sly. But a lot of Jews did convert to Catholicism in order yeah. to keep their... I mean, on the sly, you know, every generation, it might diminish a little, you know? Right. Hard to remember why it is that we keep a menorah here. Granddad seemed to... Granddad founded a flea market or right. whatever. Uh, there were a couple of key players in this whole story um, that wrote that wrote influential books in the mid 19th century. There was a book called the international Jewish conspiracy, which was uh, written by a man named Jacob Brofman, who was a Jew who converted to Christianity. Oh, and then to curry favor with his new wrote, his new buddies wrote this book again, kind of cribbing from a lot of these a lot of this source material. The title's a little on the nose. Yeah, hey, right. Jacob, what's your book about the International Jewish Conspiracy called? Uh... The International Jewish Conspiracy? <laughs> there was a, in 1878, a book uh, was written by a man named Osman Bey, which sounds like a Turkish name. Yes. But he, his real name was Frederick Millingen, <laughs> and he was a Dutch Jew who... Uh, who... Osman Bey is what uh, Justin Trudeau calls himself when he's wearing his, uh, his Arabian <laughs> face. <laughs> He went, uh, Milingen went to, went to Turkey and joined the army and fought for the Ottomans and converted to Islam and then converted to orthodoxy and wrote a book called The Conquest of the World by Jews. Again, a kind of, you know, it's the the old trope of the self-hating Jew. There must be some external pressure on these guys, right? These guys aren't just thinking of this. Somebody is like, hey, you are a Jew, right? Tell us all the... Tell us all the secret stuff you guys are up to. That oh, or okay. or a feeling like this is, you know, if I'm going to truly assimilate here, I need to denounce uh, right. my people in the most sensationalistic way possible. Yeah, maybe he's still getting accused. Well, we can't trust this guy. He's, he's still a Jew. Look at him, you know. Well, not after you read this. <laughs> all of this coalesced at the very end of the 19th century in uh, – or, or the the, the – beginning of the 20th with the original publication of what became the protocols of the meetings of the learned elders of Zion. It's a little long. It is a little long. The ladies of the harem of the court of King Caractacus. When it first, when it was first published, it was, um, it was just sort of a small, a pamphlet and, uh, and a pamphlet that was very much derived from, the original sort of Maurice Jolie satirical version of this conversation. As uploaded into Biarritz. As run through Biarritz and uh, and the writings of Hermann Goetje. Now it was taken it was taken completely out of either of those contexts, published as a slim volume that purported to be the overheard uh, conversation that happened in a in a once every hundred year meeting Ooh. 
of uh, like the leaders of all the 12 tribes of Israel who all would meet in Paris and discuss once every hundred years how their project, their, their you know, uh, centuries old project for world domination, for world domination was going. I suspect, so I've never read the protocols and I right. suspect I'm not going to be a fan. I'm not going to recommend it to my book club. But I got to say, I enjoy the world building here. Yeah. Like if you're going to write some, one of these awful anti-Semitic tracts or screeds, like I kind of like the idea that uh, he's going to invent this imaginary Congress that has once every hundred years and somehow we snuck out the minutes. It's wonderful the way, uh, the way like a lot of these stories, it's a, it's a great world building, but the key element, like how did you... If there, if this, That's what I was going to say. If this meeting's happening every hundred years and it's like the most closely guarded secret, how did someone like like a janitor overhear this? And it's, there's no purported explanation for its provenance, right? Nobody waves their hands and says, here's how we many Bothans died to bring us this information. There is. Oh. Uh, one of the explanations was that a woman who knew one of the top Masonic leaders got her hands on this. And I think that's believable because it's some, it's some, you know, it was like a be, like bedside. There's some sexual element, that's like right. some Matahari type spiriting out yeah, of his loose uh, lip sync shit hotel suite. Uh, another one was that they found uh, someone, you know, found this book. Um, you know, they they pushed on a bookshelf and they, they were led into the chancellery of Zion, and there it was, and they grabbed it and ran out. I don't think if, if Zion has a secret chancellery, it should be better guarded than that. What's crazy about it is. There is no, uh, in all the years since 1902, of course, there have been innumerable attempts to explain who wrote this document and where it came from. And no one has ever, I mean, all the great scholars, all of the interested parties. This is actual study of its real provenance. Yeah. And we don't know. Have never been able to discern exactly what happened. Now, the. It just appeared. the, the, The characters in this little passion play. Um, are a man by the name of Pyotr Rachowski, who was the head of the Akrana, which was the Tsarist secret police. Oh, like and KGB of the early KGB of, of the turn Tsar. of the century. And he's trying to stoke uh, he's trying to stoke antisemitism as a way of you know as a kind of Bismarckian way of keeping politics under his thumb. Is this like later the same purpose it would serve for the Nazis? Is it a scapegoat? Don't don't blame the Tsar. Blame some blame the Jews for whatever's wrong with your life. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, there were it, within the global competition that was now taking place between Russia and and Germ or Prussia and I keep saying Germany, but Prussia and you know Austria and France. Uh, whenever someone would get the the um, the short end of the stick in some conflict, it was it was a lot easier to say, well, we were undermined than it was to say, well, we did a bad job. Right. Our generals did a bad job. The czar is not the smartest leader. We're not, you know, we, we, um, we didn't have a good claim to that. They should just go with the American explanation, which is we actually won. We won. Right. They should have. And Despite I, I, what you've heard about Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Oh, oh, and they did. They all went great. They did, they did that too. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start that's unlimited access to thousands of lessons exercises and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks just go to musician.com slash start that's y-o-u-s-i-c-i-a-n.com slash start the presence of this protocol um, was not just anti-semitic but it was anti-liberalism ah right the czar is not feeling pressure from the Jews. The Tsar is feeling pressure from modernity and um, and reform. Forces of democracy and reform. That's right. And this would scare people away from that, right? If you could if you can tie if you can make the case that democracy and reform are actually pernicious, the end goal is not to give you more freedom, is not to give the world more liberty and more right. economic opportunity. The more autocratic the Tsar remains, then the, the safer we are from this kind of stuff I'm reading about in my new protocol. That's book. right. He's saving you from uh, from liberalism. And connecting it to the Jews is just, in a way, kind of a convenient happenstance. You could fill in the blanks today with the deep state and the president. You exactly. Know? As, as long as he's doing all this crazy stuff, he's keeping us safe from these conspiracies well and the idea that we see in the way we talk about the way the russians intervened in our last election it's very very similar to the way that the jews were described in the protocols of the elders of zion they're not does that make you skeptical of these claims it's all very 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 familiar it really is the the idea and and also russia being a, a an asiatic other uh, the, the villain that people that the right age to believe this kind of stuff remember their whole lives, right? right? And 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 primarily that that the work that was being done by the Russians on Facebook or by the Jews <laughs> in in Russia in 1902 does not have a direct end, but has a um, has an indirect end, which is to destabilize. And ultimately, like undermine long last, long functioning systems and replace them with un the unknown with um. It's, with, a, sm- it's a smart bet because chaos tends to increase in a system. That's right. You don't have to predict a particular outcome for your conspiracy to take off. You can be like, hey, anything weird that happens coming up is clearly part of this destabilization attempt. So it's it's very forward compatible with no matter what happens. And connecting it to the Jews made it. Um, made it seem that much more dangerous because the Jews were this sort of um, very, very present other. And the idea that they would be trying to gain control, not just over their local government, but, but globally, it acquitted with the rise of a kind of Jewish self-awareness and, and, um, and, and sense that that wealthy and powerful Jews needed to look out for Jews globally. There is increasing affluence and influence. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it it connected to a 
sort of very recent in the last hundred years, complete destabilization of Europe. And, you know, liberalism didn't sweep in as one single movement. It happened in different places in different times. And it was, and there was a lot of bloodshed that went along with it. Well, I'm not convinced. You're trying to convince me, but <laughs> I'm still against these, this book, John. I think it's bull. So, so this became, uh, and, and of course, we cannot attribute this book to uh, Rachowski. And what Rachowski did, and this is, there's been so much scholarship and investigation about where this came from. Rachowski took, um, took a, 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 sort of made dupes of other writers feeding all of this all of these writings that were you know the the kind of the the font of these secret meetings the he the didn't book. dream this up he never had a bunch of guys sit around and be like let's say they're called the elders of zion but he but he found some of this literature out there in the ether and kind of combined it into a thing and a movement yeah and and there were you know there were there were things there were things that were easy to grab right i mean the the jews had independent governments within their other nations because they were they were self they had they, some autonomy and they had to be self-directing because they you know they needed to be organized right. and so they had a, 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 an idea or a, i guess a system called kahal which was like a theocratic kind of so they had a, a parallel kind of justice system administered by religious leaders. Yeah, and it was easy to it was easy. I mean, that's like kahal is a pretty sinister sounding idea. Like today in the U.S., the word Sharia uses that it fulfills that same niche. Like, well, better watch out; they're using a Sharia system in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or something. Right. Uh, scaremongering. Scaremongering and and just sort of like uh, we don't, we don't know what this is. So it sounds weird. It sounds weird. It yeah. sounds bad. Uh, there was a there was a a Russian aristocrat who was kind of a playboy who fell on hard times and hit and got a sort of had an orthodox religious conversion by the name of Sergei Nilis, who was writing sort of mystical writings about his own uh, orthodox transformation. I see his conversion. And he wrote a book called, and th- th- this whole era is defined by books that have really long titles. <laughs> but his book was, or his influential book, uh, was called "The Great Within the Small and Antichrist: An Imminent Political Possibility." Notes of an Orthodox Believer. I can't diagram that sentence. <laughs> and within the Great Within the Small and Antichrist is the, the great, great Within the Antichrist. The Great Within the Small and Antichrist. Okay, I have no idea. Okay. Um, and within his book, the final chapter of his book is uh, is also kind of the, the this pamphlet that became the first Elders of the Protocols of Zion pamphlet that then was expanded upon and and taken out of any kind of like this is a received transmission, this is a um, this is a, a this is a story or a dialogue right. between all, characters. All the framing is gone, and, and it's it, as if it's really just a first person. And it becomes a first, this this account, and then it is expanded upon. It's originally published in 1902. Then we see, in and in Russian, and we see increasing in Russian, but kind of clearly a Russian translation of original French text. Okay, and then we start to see it disseminate as um, as a translation out of the Russian, just like an onion piece. 
man. And then pretty soon you start seeing it, you know, the, the daily caller falls for it or whatever. Right. Uh, Henry Ford paid for a translation of it that, that he called the international Jew. And he, in the twenties printed half a million copies of it. And, and he's, he's very influential with all his employees in, with his employees. And he was thought of as the, you know, the one of those great American industrialists. If Henry was, Ford is wor- worried about this. Maybe we should be worried, honey. Our old, our old pal, uh, father Coughlin, uh, the radio demagogue. Yeah. Published or, or, and all, and I think read aloud from the protocols of the elders of Zion, uh, Zion quite a bit. Um, it became then after after World War One. So at the beginning of World War One, the Pale of Settlement dissolved, and Jews at that point were able to kind of escape, travel freely for a brief period there, um, because there was no longer the, those old restrictions didn't apply as the as the these empires started to crumble. There's new line boundary lines anyway, right? Yeah, reportedly Tsar Nicholas as he after he was deposed by the Bolsheviks read aloud from the protocols of the elders of Zylon to his family from a Bolshevik jail prior to them being taken out and and uh, shot and buried in a hole. Is that why they shot the Romanovs just to shut him up? No, I think it was I mean they shot him because he was a bad czar and <laughs> well, they were Bolsheviks. There is that, I guess. <laughs> but but you could see that he was telling this story to his family by way of explanation. This explains our plight. Well, that, that's the question I was going to ask. Were people, was this just fooling the masses or were people in power, were they falling for it too? Or were they just using this like, hey, this will be great for us? Or was it really more like, holy cow, I was... We were right about the Jews, guys. Check this out. The, the idea, for, for instance, the Germans at the end of World War I had very rightly uh, a lot of confusion about how it is they ended up having lost in the sense that on the final days of the war, the Germans had not really surrendered any territory. Um, they hadn't really lost any battles. You know, it, w- it, w- it had been a truce for, or a stalemate rather, for the whole length of the war. It was only the introduction of the United States that started to tip the scales. If the U.S. hadn't joined the war there at the very end, there was the, the the British and French never would have defeated the Germans. So they they're just feeling disbelief. They're like, no, we were doing great. What well, something must have up until the. I mean, I think even at the conclusion of the war, they're all like, okay, the war's over. We yeah. won, right? Well, or from the German perspective, it was like, all right, well, that sucked. Let's all shake hands and go back and do, you know, go back to our farms. And it was then. In the in the post-war treaty process, that France and Britain, France in particular, really prosecuted their victory and imposed all these incredible uh, punitive punitive yeah. uh, sort of treaties on the on the the Germans and the Austrians. They completely partitioned Austria. Hungary became a a, a shadow of its former self, and. In that in that Treaty of Versailles process, the Germans kind of came out the other side like, wait a minute, what happened? How did this happen? And at this point, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion suggested this very kind of convincing argument that the Germans had been undermined from within. They were the military power. They had this Teutonic 
structure? How could we have failed? How could it have failed The us? deck was unfairly stacked against them by shadowy, sinister forces. That's right. Also, a lot of whom are located in Paris as yeah. part of this. And, you know, this is also post-Dreyfus affair within France where, you know, the French Republic was kind of rent asunder by the by the idea that a Jewish officer had spied on behalf of the Germans and had been um, had been discovered and prosecuted, even though he was a scapegoat and it was really, uh, really a completely different officer who was sort of Hungarian. It's a very divisive thing, and you could really see who was who was buying the story based on the the Jewish identity of the purported traitor. Right? If you look at the people within France who supported Dreyfus, they were all the intellectuals and artists and ballet dancers, and the, that was not enough. <laughs> and the, you know, people that were that were Republican and were um, were pro government, pro military. Of course, all in spite of all the evidence that Dreyfus was innocent insisted in on his guilt. So there was a even within the competitors, the governmental competitors of these different nations, there was a kind of unified sense that within our own nations there are Jews working against us in favor of their global desire to undermine all our power. institutions. That's right. And uh, there's no uh, there's no inquiry of this at, at any high level of it's an obvious forgery I assume on many levels so and, and nobody's nobody's doing that work in the 1930s there was uh, in, within Switzerland in the city of Bern a group of uh, of like affluent Jews sued a publisher of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion under the law that. Uh, that the that the publication was sowing hatred, and there were anti-hatred laws mm-hmm. even then. And so throughout the 1930s, there was an ongoing series of court cases in Switzerland where over and over all the evidence was presented that these were forgeries, that this was a um, that this was the work of the Russian intelligence service. That Presumably was, if they'd been true, that would have been a good defense. I assume in this era as now, truth isn't pretty absolute defense against libel. So if, if this actually is... A, a real group's meeting minutes, then the court's going to decide one way. And if they're a fraud, that's pretty relevant. Yeah, and but 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 there's no convincing um, there's no convincing you if you think that the courts are also sure part of a overarching Jewish conspiracy. How did the findings go? Like, were, were, was there generally were officials generally on board with? Yeah, yeah, this is probably a hoax, but it just didn't convince the the masses. Well, because this was also, I mean, 1935, 33 to 36 or whatever was also the rise of the Third Reich. And and Hitler referred to the protocols in, in Mein Kampf. Uh, they were widely publicized or ra- rather widely published and disseminated within Nazi Germany as um, – Explanations for the new policies. Well, and as, you know, as a, a true document. Um, and so although within the – you know, within the Swiss courts, it was, uh, it was adjudicated. I think that the that all of the all of the proof that these were forgeries had been aptly demonstrated or amply demonstrated. But that was not getting to the your average Bavarian. No, because you could never find the author. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was never no one ever stood up and said, "I wrote them." It was a party trick uh, because it had so many authors and there were so many. Um, 
so many sort of wellsprings of it. But also, it's funny that this is a there was no actual conspiracy really to produce it. It was kind of an organic collage of different things that that made this awful document. Because what made it so appealing was not that it was. It was. Not, it wasn't that the Jews were trying to control the world. It was an explanatory text for how come the world is what it is, mm-hmm. and and it made the scapegoat the liberal impulse. And I think a lot of people mistakenly think that Hitler and the Nazis thought of the Jews as lesser and subhuman uh, because that was that was what they said to the. That's what the propaganda yeah, said. To the masses to justify killing them. But they were like using animals. them just like just like the Tsar. The, and the Nazis, I think, at that, you know, philosophically believed that the Jews were dangerously smart, dangerously powerful, and were trying to undermine what was a good German uh maybe a stolid Germanness that wasn't smart, that didn't listen to um, avant-garde music that didn't appreciate modernist painting. And those were good things that the idea that Picasso was, was turning German teenagers into degenerates as part of a Jewish plan to institute democratic jazz music government in, sure. in such a way that, you know, that ultimately the destabilization. When I hear the word culture, I reach for my browning, right? Like, right. Well, there's culture and then there's culture jazz hands. Yeah. Uh, so although the, the protocols have been demonstrated to be frauds since six weeks after they were first published and, of course, incredibly discredited throughout the, the whole of the 20th century. The protocols of the elders of Zion are, um, are cited in the foundation documents of Hamas. Hmm. Um, and they are now widely printed and disseminated as true documents within the Arab world. What about in, uh, what about in the West? Like, do you still see white supremacist, neo-Nazi type groups relying on this kind of language? You do, but within the West, it has become, um, there's an awful lot of assimilation of these ideas and these terms into the broader global sort of uh, world of conspiracy thinking. I mean, conspiracy theory in the United States right now is a, a extremely seductive and powerful cultural it's movement. Probably at an all-time high just due to technology, if People nothing else. People love it, and they look for it everywhere. And they and 9-11 was a conspiracy. Something as benign as the vaccine you give your kids become and a huge battleground. Liberal progressives are just as susceptible to conspiracy thinking as reactionary conservatives. There are cons- There's a conspiracy to fit every mood. And so many of them are rooted in an idea from the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is that the world is not what it appears. It is ideas that seem, that seem to be, uh, liberal are actually being used to destabilize, undermine, corrupt, uh, 
Yeah, any any kind of reform, seemingly progressive reform, is actually a con, right? right? And that and that by corrupting us, by making us slaves to consumerism, to capitalism. I mean, capitalism was throughout this whole period another dog whistle for the Jews, and now we see on the left in America, there's no greater enemy than capitalism, and a lot of that anti-Semitic language has just been whitewashed. Of its right. semitism, but the idea still that there is a temp, there's somewhere a big meeting room, shadowy rich guys, full of rich guys who you know we're not calling them Jews anymore because they could be anybody, but mostly Jews. If you're if you're conservative, <laughs> you could say Soros. You could mention right. particular right. Jewish influencers and wink a bit. But but it, it's across the political spectrum. Yeah, and so the pro- it, it informs some criticism of Israel uh, on the left. I mean. There's so, there's a tremendous there's certainly valid and invalid criticism of Israel, but the, sometimes it's informed by these ideas. Well, and within that world of uh, there are a lot of people that feel like any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic, but there's also a sense that anyone who says that any criticize uh, any criticism <laughs> of uh, Israel is anti-Semitic is also part of a, a different is also anti-Semitic. Yeah, right. I don't want to diagram that sentence either. <laughs> so. Um, so although the protocols now, you would not find any reputable citation of them, they, you, except in the, the like basest white supremacy community, you would never hear them taken seriously. But now they're just baked into the culture. It's, you almost don't have to cite them. It's, incre- it's, it's baked into the culture. And now with the, with the, the involvement of the Russians as the, new, the latest agents of destabilizing forces – um, the the lack of any concrete sense of truth. Um, we're all living in the in a world described by the protocols of Zion. It seems like the story of the protocols of the elders of Zion is broader than what I would have thought of it as, which is kind of a landmark of anti-Semitic thought. It is that, but it's also uh, just the, a wider movement of sowing distrust in. All of our institutions. Yeah. When, when, when you hear someone say the Jews control the media, it's not just an indictment of the Jews. It's attempting to be an indictment of the media. Don't trust any of this. It's, yeah. It's been infiltrated. That's right. And it's not, that the, it's not just that the Jews are controlling the media to benefit themselves. It's that by making the media untrustworthy, the Jews are ultimately trying to destroy civilization and put it under their thumb. So it, it really, I mean, the Jews are the culprits in that story, but really the, the goal is to make you feel like you can't trust anyone. Well, that's still how I feel when I look at the sound meter on the Jumbotron. So it must be working. Well, Ken, you can trust me. And that concludes The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, Entry 1000.ES0905, Certificate Number 42869, in the Omnibus. Speaking of forces of destabilization and chaos, please seek us out on social media. We are at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick on Twitter and in John's case, Instagram. We are at Omnibus Project, uh, everywhere you look. We're not sewing... Societal chaos. Are we though? not, though? Mm, 
you're part of the global Mormon conspiracy to. I'm not doing a very good job to put uh, marshmallows in Jello. <laughs> <laughs> it's going great, by the way. <laughs> I'm part of the marshmallow global- <laughs> sales are up 02 percent this holiday season, and that's I think a lot of that's me. I'm part of the global conspiracy that insists on still not wearing socks even in winter. Uh, I'm in the global conspiracy to make it okay to take off your shoes on an airplane. No, and I know I you're will gonna be- fight you. You can't fight me. The flight attendants will support me in this. Why don't you bring your fucking support turkey? Oh, I'm sorry. I swore there. <laughs> they, they didn't hear. They bleeped it. Mark bleeped it. We don't. Nobody heard that. Nobody even knows what word you said. You could have yeah. said something nice about my support yeah. turkey, <laughs> which you should. Your awesome support turkey. Because Caroline is delightful <laughs> and very well behaved on most flights. I do not want to sit next to your turkey. Uh, we, uh, if you would like to send us any kind of physical item through the mails. Oh, what do you got there? It's a postcard from Hawaii. Oh, this is the guy that sent us this. This is from the guy that sent us the snacks. Oh, yeah. Those are good snacks. Those those here's somebody somebody writing from Burning Man. Hey, hey. And wants us to put Burning Man in the omnibus. I'm amazed that he had his the wherewithal at Burning Man to uh, to think about podcast. You know, there are there are as many Burning Men as there are Burning Man's. I'm not sure what that means. The great and small within the small at Burning Man. <laughs> there are people at Burning Man who are not high. Is what I'm trying to say. Here's our friend Sparky writing us from Boston. He just sends us a, a postcard wherever he goes. Hey, Sparky. It's a two bears, two teddy bears carrying a thing of baked beans, which is something you often see walking around Boston. Yeah, but look more carefully. You see Masonic symbols all over that. Oh, obviously. So, anyway. Look how the bears are kind of marching in a military fashion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Are those kosher beans? Saddam Hussein, basically. Here's uh, here's a homemade postcard in which uh, someone has grammatically diagrammed the sentence, we hope and pray the catastrophe for may never come. Oh, I love that. So now we know uh, how to uh, how to diagram that sentence. Please, 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 futurelings, if you're going to send us something and you want to diagram some sentences on a postcard, we are the target audience for that. Write out your letter and then send us a second letter in which you diagram the sentences of your first letter. You, you- would be amazed at the number of like offline conversations Ken and I have where one of us says... Well, I don't want to diagram that sentence. And Ken says it online like four times an episode. You can send any of these things to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 981155, if the mails are working in your era. It's probably a Kevin Costner type postman wandering the wasteland, but uh, he'll he'll deliver to us, I'm sure. He seems like a good guy. Uh, you, If you uh, have currency in your era, if you would like to ensure the long-term success of this entry. We really want to cover all of human culture, and it's a little bit daunting. There's, yeah. there's new culture every time I look. We have not done a show about Visco Girls, and suddenly there's Visco Girls. This show doesn't seem like it's a lot of work. It just seems like me and Ken sitting and talking about all the stuff we normally would, which it is. But, but. In, instead, it's me checking my email while John reads about anti-Semitic <laughs> literature for two so, hours. I was so mad. I'm so mad looking over at you, looking at your phone, while I'm telling you some important stuff. I was taking notes on my phone. I'm using my okay. notes app to write okay. down uh, important some, information some okay, about good, the good, elders good. of Zion. Good, good, good. Every hundred years. Check. And Actually, wait a minute. That would have meant that the latest protocols meeting what happened in sure. 2002 or something. Why the heck didn't we? Why weren't we invited? Come on. 
Where do you think it was? Do you think there was like a, a bidding process of who gets to host the uh, Elders of Zion? What was going on in 2002? Well, it was post 9-11. Just. So we were busy. We were busy making the world safe for democracy. We were busy renaming French fries. Yeah, they were probably in Zurich or something. We didn't even notice. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, why was I talking about this? Oh, so if you want to donate to, if you want oh, to yeah. become a contributor to the Omnibus um, and ensure the long-term health of the project as culture booms, uh, please use uh, our Patreon, patreon.com slash omnibus. <laughs> omnibus? Omnibus. <laughs> The Burning Omnibus. Omnibus Project, but without the Omnibabushka. H. Omnibabushka. Uh, we uh, were uh, on... Fa- uh, there's a Facebook group. It's the only place on Facebook where you won't see awful fake news sown by the Russians, those sinister agents of chaos. Would be the Future Links Facebook group. It's delightful. Please join. There are similar gathering places on Reddit. John said all the names last time, and mm-hmm. I wasn't listening. Mm-hmm. I was looking at my phone. That's right. So I don't know what they were. R slash futurelings, I think, is the one that I'm going to go with. Oh, you've chosen a dog in the oh, race. The other, I don't know. The other two are going to are going to wither on the vine now. <sighs> I don't know. That just seems pretty bold. R slash omnibus underscore futurelings. There's no official subreddit. That we both endorse. We no. we enjoy, uh, let, you know, let, let a thousand flowers bloom on, yeah. on Reddit. Is R our, slash is Futurelings, I feel like if we're going to just reduce it to one, let's just call it that. But there was also Omnibus Project and Omnibus underscore Futurelings. That's right. So a lot of options out there for you to waste your time. Someone else solve this because I don't want to. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Almost certainly it was undermined by liberalism. Will the elders of Zion meet again in 2102? Hard to say. I think that modern art and jazz music probably turned us all into degenerates, and now we're just living squalid lives crawling around in the muck. I never listened to jazz or went to the ballet. Am I still a degenerate? Has modern art got its tendrils in me other ways? I know a lot of degenerates, and you, you, sir, are no degenerate. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. No, no, no. I feel like you're upholding. You're the. You're going to be the last man standing, the last person in a in a madras short sleeved button down shirt Listen, standing. Listening to Vivaldi. <laughs> um, we hope and pray that liberalism is not a pernicious divider of people, but one that brings light unto the world. But if the worst comes soon, and we are wrong this whole time, and it really was like the modern novel that lit the fuse. If that's true, then this episode will be censored by our future overlords. No one will ever hear this entry in the omnibus. Uh, if if that's true, then this recording, unlike all our other recordings, <laughs> may not make it to your ears. But uh, But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.